Father, tonight we want to come before you with a heart of worship and say to you, God, that you are everything to us. And Father, if we can't say that tonight, if that's not true about us, if that's not true about where we are on our journey with you, then God, allow that to become true about us tonight. God, as we journey through Exodus 17, Father, I pray that you would continue just to work in our hearts, God, in this wandering that we are on. Father, we so see ourselves in these Israelites. We so see ourselves in their story because it's really an explanation of our story. And God, what you want to do in our hearts and our lives. And so, Father, tonight I pray, God, that you would allow us to get your perspective, to see it from your vantage point. And that, God, we would find all of our joy and satisfaction and hope in you. So crush our idols and let us see you for who you are. The most worthy, beautiful, all-satisfying person in the world. We love you, Jesus. And the church said, if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 17. And if you're back here from school, it's good to have you back. Um, if you're on, if I think all of our UCF people are back, and then we've got some other folks who will be back next week um, on spring break. So Exodus 17. Let me encourage you to a couple things. If you're here in the area um, on March 16th, 17th, and 18th, we're having Restore Weekend. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Um, well, typically, we would have our spring retreat about that time, but because of some logistical things, and we want more people to be involved in the retreat. We decided to push it to the summer. So we're going to kick off our summer with the retreat on Little Gasparilla Island. If you've been before, it's an awesome time. And so what we wanted to do was just serve the widows and the orphans of our city. And so you have some awesome opportunities to do that. Sign up at the Ghost Center table, or you can sign up on Facebook as well, or the, the Facebook invite is there. Uh, and then also Passion. How many of you went to Passion last year? How many been to Passion before, ever? Okay. So Passion is 310. Is that right? Is that total? That pays for transportation and hotel. Hotel. It doesn't pay for your food and the registration to the event. Uh, 40,000 people were there this year, and they're hoping to fill the whole dome, which would be 80,000 people uh, this next year. Uh, logistically, that means you basically never eat because uh, you can't get into a restaurant around there, but it's okay. Um, it's just you have to fight for food. So it's kind of like you're wandering uh, in the wilderness with a million other Israelites, and you're like, where are we going? Uh, it's great. But if you want to get involved in passion, it's the beginning of the year. What are the exact dates? January... One through four. So we'll, we'll, we'll head up there. We'll either take a bus or drive. Um, and it's $50 deposit to get you in. Now, if you went last year and you bought an all access pass for all those who bought all access passes, you get a discount. So go sign up before April. Do you know the date? April 1st. Uh, that way you can get your discount. And it's 181 for everything else. There you go. So good deal. Exodus chapter 17. Let's kind of dig in here. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start us by reading just this text. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So we're going to see three things in this text. It's going to be really simple. We have a pretty short text tonight, seven verses, as opposed to what we've been dealing with, big chunks of scripture. But tonight we're going to see three things. You're going to see basically this. You're going to see the long suffering of God. You're going to see the rock of God. And you're also going to see that God is a just God. You're going to see the justice of God. The long-suffering of God, the rock of God, the justice of God. Now, as we see this, and and I've waited till this part of the passage to really talk about this, this part of the series to really talk about this, but over and over and over, what we've seen from the Israelites as they journey through this wilderness is one consistent trait from them. It's not faith, it's not trust, it's grumbling. The consistent trait, if I could sum up the Israelites' attitude and their heart and their mind, I would sum it up in this word, grumbling and complaining. They've grumbled and complained at every turn. So the Lord that they cried out to for 400 years delivers them from Egypt. And he does so with 10 plagues that come against the Egyptian gods. He delivers them. He takes them to the Red Sea. They're standing there looking at the Red Sea. They don't know how they're going to get through it. And then he parts the Red Sea and they walk on dry ground, the scripture says. They get across the Red Sea and they don't have water to drink. He takes them to a place with water, but then the water is bitter. They cry out to the Lord and they grumble again. And God takes the bitter water and he makes it sweet. Then in the next chapter, they get to a desert and they don't have anything to eat. And so they grumble again to the Lord. Have you brought us out here, Moses, to kill us and our children? And what does God do? He gives them manna every day, the Bible says. For 40 years, while they're in the wilderness, every single day they had something to eat because of the hand of the Lord and his provision and his goodness on them. So there's always been this grumbling kind of thing. And every time they come to another impasse on the journey and it doesn't look like it's going to work out, what do they do? Instead of trusting and hoping in the Lord, they grumble against the Lord and Moses' servant. So someday most of you will probably have kids. And you'll realize that your kid's attention span is short. And their ability to remember your goodness to them is short. Let me give you an instance. Uh, I take Ava to the mall most Fridays I'm in town. Well, I used to. She's in school now, so now Jane just gets to go. But if she has a day off, what I like to do is we just like to go hang out. And so our routine has been for many years, we just go to the mall. Uh, we go, we would play at uh, Books a Million because that's where Thomas the Train lived. So we'd play there with Thomas. Then we would go get coffee. I wouldn't feed my child coffee. She'd get chocolate milk. Um, and then, and then we would go walk around and see Ben Hewitt if he's working at Apple. And these are all the things that she, she likes to do. And then we would go and see Drew and those guys at Chick-fil-A. They don't work there anymore. Um, praise the Lord for them. But so we would go and see those guys at Chick-fil-A and we would eat. And sometimes they would beg me. They beg me for things all the time. Your kids will do this. You have done this to your parents before, by the way. You probably remember this. Begging your mom and dad for this toy, which you just had to have. Begging mom and dad to do this thing. So here's the two things I get begged for all the time at the mall. I get begged to ride the carousel and I get begged to go to the Disney store. When I get in the Disney store, after I've had a long discussion with them about how we cannot buy anything, the first thing I get asked is, daddy, can we buy this? And so there are times where in the goodness and the grace of who I am as a father, I will shed grace on them and buy them a stuffed animal from Disney. 
Now, my wife typically doesn't like this because she's trying to teach them not to ask for things. But sometimes, it's because I'm a pushover, dad, at times, I will buy them things. And it's interesting because I remember this one particular time where Ava wanted this stuffed animal. And she just been, she just been like pressuring me for it and all this stuff. And, and she'd been pretty good that day. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to buy it for her. It's 10 bucks. I'm going to buy it for her. I bought it for her. Okay. I buy her the stuffed animal. And then we're there and sh- we're leaving. And she says, daddy, I want ice cream. I said, well, no, we're not, get- we're not getting ice cream. I just bought you the stuffed animal. And she, she just melts down. And she's like, my life is so horrible. Like she's just going on and on about how horrible her life is because she can't get ice cream. And she's going on and on about all of this stuff. And in that moment, like I see my child's depravity, right? I see like her selfishness, but I also see her ability to forget my goodness. I just bought her the thing that she was begging me for. And then she gets to the point to where she wants ice cream, which by the way, will be gone in a minute. And the the stuffed animal will be there. So I bought her the greater thing, the better thing, the more expensive thing. And what does she choose to grumble over? The cheaper thing that will be gone in about three seconds. She forgets my goodness. She forgets that I, her father, out of love and grace towards her, bought her the thing which she really didn't need. And she forgets that in an instant. And her life is horrible and it's melting down. And we do that to God. The Israelites are doing that to God. Over and over and over again. So what what does it say here? It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So they went in groups of people according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at a place called Rephidim, the Bible says. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So here's what we see, first of all, in this text. And you really see it in all this, in all this whole chunk of scripture, really from chapters 15 all the way to 19, because they're going to grumble and grumble and grumble. And here's what we see. We see the long suffering of God. The word long suffering is not a word that we typically use a whole lot. You probably have not used the word long suffering very much this week, but we know what long suffering is. Now, last week we ended with the patience of God in the man in the desert because it says up a couple verses in chapter 32, I'm I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 33, it says um, that they were taken and they put the man in a jar and verse 34 says they were asked to place it and keep it as a testimony to the people. And then it says in verse 35 of that last chapter, the people ate manna for 40 years so they came to habitable land, even though they were tested by God and they failed the test. Not to go out on the seventh day and gather manna. And they did it. And God goes, okay, well, you messed up today, but I have grace on you and patience with you. So I'm still going to give you manna for 40 years. I'll give you manna. Because I'm a patient, gracious father. So we see the patience of God, but, but we see it extending into chapter 17. You would think that at this point, God would be done with them, right? I mean, Moses is done with them. What does it mean to long suffer with somebody? The word patience kind of carries with it this connotation of if I'm patient, <coughs> sorry, if I'm patient with you, then I look at you and I just put up with you. Like some of you have people in your life that you just put up with, but you're not gracious towards them. You're not extravagant towards them. You don't necessarily even want to meet their needs, but you just kind of put up with them. Everyone's got people like that in our life. Let's just be honest and not be too spiritual. There's people you just put up with. But patience goes beyond that for God. It's long-suffering. 
It's this idea of his steadfast love, his steadfastness, which the scripture talks about over and over and over again. My, my daughter, Ava, and Jane have a Bible. I think it's the best kid's Bible that there is. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. You should buy a Jesus Storybook Bible. I'm not even kidding. You should buy it, and you should read it every day along with your reading. Don't, be the, that, don't make that your main Bible reading, okay? But you should buy it and read it along with every, every day you read the Bible. I read it to them just about every day, and I'm moved to tears at times. Because this Bible has these phrases in it. And, and every, at the end of every kind of major story, it doesn't go through all the stories, but the major kind of stories you would learn as a kid, it, it always points to Jesus. It always says, another rescuer is coming. Then it has this phrase that my kids know, and I love that my kids know it, because they know this about God. And here's the phrase. His never stopping, never ending, always and forever love. He has a never stopping, a never ending, always and forever love. That's long suffering. And we see that here in this text. So the people come and they quarrel. Now this is different than grumbling. It's a different word in the Hebrew. They've been grumbling before, but now they're quarreling. It's a depth of grumbling that we haven't seen yet. So what does it say here in the text? Verse two says this. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. So they come to Moses and the Bible says they quarrel. In fact, this word quarrel is the thing that marks this passage of scripture. Why do I say that? Well, if you go to the end of the passage, verse seven, it says they called this place where they were at Masa and Meribah because that means quarreling and testing in the Hebrew. So this place is marked by this event, this moment where they came to Moses and they didn't just grumble. They did something more than that. They quarreled. In the Hebrew language that the Bible was written in originally, this word carries with it quite literally, not just a, I'm grumbling against you, not just I'm complaining to you, but it actually carries with it the term of litigation. It actually is a word that can mean to litigate, to go to court. So here's what they're doing. They're coming to Moses and they're basically taking him to court. They want to litigate against him. It's beyond grumbling. It's time to bring charges against Moses. So they're bringing these charges against Moses. And here's what the charge is. You've brought us out here to die. Now this should sound familiar. If you've been here for a couple of weeks, this should sound familiar. They're constantly saying, Moses, you've brought us out here to die. You've brought us out here to kill us. But this time, they're going a little bit further. Their language is accusatory, and they want to bring a charge against him. They want to go to court, in essence. And here's what, here's what Moses says. Look at verse um, 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why would you bring us out here to Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock uh, with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. So here's that language. They're almost ready to stone me. When you would be stoned by somebody, it was what happened after a charge was brought against you, after litigation was brought against you. So they were bringing a charge to Moses, and Moses turns around to God and says, what do you want me to do with these people? They are ready to take me to court and stone me. Now let me just pause here for a second. How many of you in here would say, I feel some kind of calling to ministry of some sort, maybe the pastorate or missionary or, or something like that? Okay, let me just pause here. I'm going to speak to you guys for a minute. There will be times in your ministry and in your life where you're going to feel like Moses right here, right? There will be times where people in your church that you have served and washed their dirty, nasty feet, literally, and maybe figuratively, there's going to be times where you serve people and all they want to do is come back at you. No doubt Moses was serving these people. Man, he was their leader. He went above them, beyond them, before them. He was serving them and they come to him and they bring this litigation against him. And here's what Moses, here's the language you hear with Moses. I am done with these people. 
So for those of you who want to be pastors, missionaries, ministers, whatever, let me tell you the curse that's going to be on you all the days of your life. That you will want more for the people you pastor than they actually want for themselves. That you will want more for the people that you pastor than they actually want for themselves. I can tell you the most frustrating thing as a pastor is to look at people and go, you have so much potential. What are you doing? (laughs) You spend all your days playing video games. You never get into the Bible. And then you wonder why you don't grow. What are you doing? And then, and then the other thing is this as a pastor is to look at people and see that they'll say one thing and then they'll do another thing. The hypocrisy of people at times. But then I have to deal with my own hypocrisy before I look at the people I pastor and go, well, you're a hypocrite. Here's where Moses is. He's done with these people. Their patience of him has run out. His patience of them has run out. But guess whose patience hasn't run out? God's. How do we know that? He is long-suffering. Look at what it says here. It says that Moses is done with them. We get that intent in Moses' statement in verse 4. What should I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. So the people are done with Moses. He's done with them. He's ready to be done. It's over. Let me wash my hands of these people. They don't want to do what you say. I'll go with you. (laughs) Leave them here. I'll go with you. But look who's not run out of patience. Our long-suffering God. Look at verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Oreb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Who hasn't run out of patience? God. So here's what our long suffering God does. When Moses comes to him, these people have run out of patience for Moses. Moses is running out of patience for him. And he comes to them and he, he's crying out to God, what am I supposed to do with these people? And do you know what a long-suffering God says to us when we complain to him about other people? He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet their deepest need. Don't miss, don't miss that, okay? Because I think some of us really struggle with selfishness in here. When someone has tested your patience... And your long-suffering is at an end? Know this about God. His long-suffering is not at an end for them. So, so whoever that, whether it's your roommate at school, that person that's in your family, the person that may be in this room tonight that you just really struggle with, know this. When your long-suffering comes to an end, because it will, God's doesn't. So Moses is talking to God, and I can just imagine Moses' response to this. Because I can imagine he thinks what God is going to say is, okay, I'm done with them. They've been grumbling. I gave them water. I gave them sweet water from bitter water. I gave them manna. I'm still giving them manna. Notice this about the people. They grumbled even in the midst of provision. How do I know that? Because chapter 16 tells us that every day in the wilderness they got manna. So manna came out of the sky that day that they got up ate the manna, the provision of God, then went to Moses to complain to God. Am I crazy? But we do the exact same thing. Our memory is really short. Their memory was hours short, by the way. So when was the last time you just kind of stopped and went, God, you have been so good to me. You have provided for me. You have provided in the small things of life. You've provided in the big things of life. Because here's what we tend to do. We tend not to see the big picture. The Pentateuch is compressed history. 
years and years and years of history. If you read through the whole Pentateuch, which is, which is the first five books of this whole thing, the, the Old Testament, if you read through this, here's what you get. You get history upon history about God's people, about them not trusting God when he's already been so trustworthy. So you think by this time in the story, they would get to uh, this place called Rephidim and they would go, oh, there's no water here. Well, God's been faithful before. Let's just kind of sit back and see what he does. It's going to be amazing. We've already seen him part a Red Sea. We've already seen him give us manna. We don't even know what it looks like. We've already seen his faithfulness. So let's just sit back and watch what our God does. That's not their response, is it? Their memory is really, really short. But one of the things that's interesting to me as I thought about this this week is, especially for those of us who've been coming through this whole series, uh, no one has come in here at any point throughout the series freaking out about what's going to happen to the Israelites. Like none of you have come in here last week and gone, They're not, there's nothing to eat for them. What are they going to do? Right? None of you came in this week going, they're in a place where there's no water and the only thing they got is a rock. What are they going to do? You want to know why you haven't been like that? Because you see the whole story. You have perspective from God because you're looking at the Holy Scriptures, but they're in the details of it. So when you're in the muck and the mire of it, you don't see the big picture. The reason why you have not come in here freaking out tonight for them is because you know how it ends. You know they get to promised land. So what do we need from God? We need perspective. Like I need to cry out to God who is long-suffering with me. And instead of grumbling to him, I need to say, Father, would you just let me, would you just give me a little lift here and let me see some of your perspective on what is going on here in the desert? Because if we were all honest, we would say that we have a really hard time remembering the last time God was good to us. Because it's kind of like this. There's something really broken about us, I believe. And I believe we see this in, in these people here who are quarreling, who are bringing litigation against Moses. And here's what's really broken. You and I have the ability to remember the worst things of life. Right? So we're really quick to grumble. But there's something about us spiritually where we just forget the amazing things that God has done. Like the fact that you have a job, some of you. The fact that you get to go to school and learn, it's amazing. Like the fact that God is providing for you, the fact that you're sitting there. We have this real easy tendency to remember all the bad things and forget all of the good things that God has done, his steadfastness, his long suffering. And so then we bring charge against God. And here's the reality. That day they came to make litigation against Moses. But what does Moses say? It says in verse two, they come to him, they quarrel. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses is the mediator from God's people to God. So when they come to him and they complain against him, they're not complaining against Moses. They're quarreling with God. They want to put God on trial. You ever been there? Like you're done. You're done with whatever's going on in your life and you're going, God, I want an answer. I want to know why this is happening. I want to know why it's going down this way. I don't know and I want to know. And so you come and you, in a sense, put litigation against God. And we tend to do that. But here's what we need. We need perspective to see that this God is a long-suffering God. And so when I get perspective and I see that God is long-suffering with me and I see his faithfulness surrounded me in every corner, the manna that he gives me every day, then I can stop and go, okay, I trust God in this moment. And it gives me peace in the midst of my deserts. So have you forgotten God's goodness lately? 
Like how often you just sit down and go, man, God, you're so good because you've given me this and you've done this and you've provided this and you've done this. But I think Americans, I think us as Americans, to be really honest with you, are the worst at this. Because we have this real big sense of entitlement. Like if my phone doesn't work for me in like two seconds, then I want to throw it across the room. Right? We have this big sense of entitlement. And so we're really quick to complain when things don't go our way. And here's what God is saying. Get perspective. I'm long-suffering with you. Praise God that he is long-suffering with me. So they bring this charge against God. And God's going to be long-suffering. He's going to meet their needs. But here's the next thing we see. Verse 6, we kind of pick up on this thing. And we see not only the long-suffering of God, but we see the rock of God. So God tells Moses, he says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to meet their needs. So Moses is probably thinking at that point, okay, we we know where some water is. But look at what verse 6 says. We'll start in verse 5, actually. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and people will drink. Now here's an interesting thing we see here. We see not only the long-suffering of God, but we see the rock of God. Now, some of you have heard this story. Many of you maybe heard this story before. You know, you know how this is going to go down. They're going to strike the rock. Water is going to come out. Yay. What some of us miss is that this is totally alien to them and to us. For God to say to them, go strike a rock, that's where you're going to get water. I'm not looking for a rock up on a mountain to go get water. It's a dry place. It's a rocky place. And I I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But if you weren't here last week and this kind of hits you where you're at, then you may want to listen to the podcast. But this is the truth, is that God typically brings the most transformation in the rocky places of our life. So he tells them, go to the rock, go to the rock of God, strike that rock. And it's in that place that you will have waters of grace that will come be poured out on you. Why do I call them waters of grace? Because they were not deserving of the water and neither are we. So they go and he begins to strike the rock. But here's the interesting thing about this is it's in the desert when I have to look to the thing that doesn't seem like it's going to provide for me. So, so the setup for that is like, we're going to go strike a rock and water's going to come out of a thing that there's not even water in it? Is that what you're telling me, God? Does God ever ask you to do something that just does not make any sense in the natural? Has God ever asked you to do anything where you're going, this does not all add up on paper, right? If God's asking you to do something that doesn't add up on paper, what is our typical response? Try to figure out how it adds up, Right? So with, with us going to Scotland, I'm trying to figure out how this all adds up. How is this going to work? Well, if I get this many people to give me this much money, and then the church gives us this much money, and, and I'm just trying to do the math in my head, but the reality is I just have to trust God. And so no doubt Moses was like, you want me to strike a rock, and then water's going to come out of it. Yeah, that's what I said. You want me to go to the rockiest place, the driest place, and that's where we're going to get relief and fulfillment. Yes, that's what I said. And it's oftentimes true that what we want is the best setup but here's what we see from exodus not just this passage but all these other ones that we've been through so far is that the best scenario the best setup everything's just right on paper so to speak without god is death so if you're set up right now, like if you're looking at life going, dude, I got it set up. I got, I got this in place and classes in place. I got a job coming. I got all this set up. And you're doing that without God. There's a way that seems right to man that leads to death. But here's what we learned from Exodus. It's at the, it's at the place where 
it seems like it's not set up at all. Or it doesn't seem like anything should work in the desert. But if you have God, it actually leads to life. The place where everything's set up without God is actually a place of death. But the place where nothing seems to be set up, where everything seems impossible with God, actually can lead to life. And I don't know about you, but just to be really honest with you, I want to be constantly in places where I just have to look to God and go, don't know how this is going to work, don't know how we're going to get water from a rock, but I just need to trust you, God, in this. Are you there? What about your life do you have to trust God for? Because as Americans, if we were honest, we don't have to trust him for a whole lot. Like you're probably not going to get in your car tonight and wonder what you're going to eat tomorrow or where you're going to sleep tonight what you're going to drink tomorrow. And so we are in actually in a place where maybe my friends in Ethiopia are in a better place in that sense because nothing's set up over there. They don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow, what they're going to drink tomorrow, where their kids are going to go to school. But I've never met more trusting people in my whole life. And then we struggle with like something really small here, right? And God wants to do something in us in the hard places. And it's kind of like this. Take for instance, um, Say a five-year-old girl, this is not a story from my life, but just, just take this for instance. Say a five-year-old girl who doesn't understand a whole lot about life, and the biggest thing is like the party she's going to go to for her friend's birthday. And this is like her first birthday party she's going to go to, and she's really excited, and her friends have invited her, and it's just going to be a great thing. But that same day where she's going to go to the birthday party, she lies about something to her mother. And as a good parent, her mother says, you've lied, and you're... Your charge for that, what you're going to get for that, is I can't let you go to the party. You have to understand that you cannot lie to us. And so you're not going to go to the party. And she breaks down, oh, my life is over. I want to go. This is, I've been waiting for this. And she's five. So her five-year-old brain is you just crushed the biggest thing in her life up to that point. Now, you could take a couple of roads on this someday when you're parenting. You could say to her, well, here's, here's what you don't understand, honey. You, you don't understand that the pain you feel now is, is, is going to be outweighed by the fact that someday you're going to be a more noble person. Your five-year-old is not going to understand that. Or to say to her something like, well, you know, there's, there's a little bit of pain now, but there's a whole lot more pain if you grew up as somebody who lies to your husband someday or to your friends. If nobody wants to be around a lying friend, well, she's not going to understand that either. But in those moments of great pain for her, what comes out of that is transformation, that she will actually become a person that she needs to be. And here's what we see here, that they are being tested to trust God. In the midst of this, they're looking at something that seems impossible. But here's what I love about the desert. The desert is a place where all of your idols and all of my idols dry up. And they don't satisfy anymore. And you have to trust the thing that doesn't seem possible at all. Strike a rock to get water? Yes. What's interesting is that there are some of you in here tonight, and your idols are drying up. Relationships are drying up. Some relationships may have ended. Maybe you found satisfaction in a job or something, it's drying up. A calling, it's, it seems to be drying up. An opportunity, it seems to be drying up. When you're in the desert, it's great because that's the place where God begins to dry up those things that we find hope and satisfaction in. And he calls us to go to the one thing that seems like it's unlikely to provide for us. The rock. Strike the rock. Go to the rock for satisfaction, for hope, for salvation. Go to the rock. And some of you in here, God is going to dry up your idols. I had a meeting today with somebody, and basically they said, everything is drying up for me. 
Everything that I think that is going to bring me joy has gone. And they knew, they know that that's true. And you can cognitively know I am not going to get joy out of this. But here's the depravity we see in ourselves is I know this because I know this is true about me. I will look at something that I know will not bring me joy and I will run hard after it, knowing that it will end in despair and thirst and I will still go after it. And then at the end, I'll grumble to God. Why? And here's what God wants to do. He wants to bring us back to the rock of God because he's a long-suffering God. Here's what we see. Not only is he long-suffering, not only do, do we see this rock, but this, this whole idea of the rock of God kind of leads us to our next point, and this is the justice of God. So you may ask the question, well, yeah, I get kind of the petty stuff that goes wrong. Maybe my car breaks down or I lose my job, but what about the really, really hard things of life? What about like when someone dies? What about like when someone gets a cancer report? What about when things go really, really bad? What about massive kind of injustices? Uh, Most of you probably saw the Invisible Children video that dropped today. It went viral in about two minutes. What about children in Uganda that are forced into slave labor and to kill other children, to kill other people? What about that kind of injustice? Those kind of systems of injustice? What about those kind of things? Not just the little things in our life, but the big things also. What about that? Well, that's a great question to ask. And I think here it kind of answers it when we see not only the long-suffering of God, the rock of God, but the justice of God. So here's what Moses tells him to do. We'll look back at verse 5 and kind of following. So it says, The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called the place the name of the place Massa and Meribah. So we see the justice of God here poured out. I was um, in college. I was a I was a communications major. So I had this class called speech performance. And it wasn't a speech class. It was a class where we'd be given plays and we had to get up and read them in a way that was exciting, I guess. So we got judged all on our enunciation, how we paused, how we didn't pause, our verbal pauses, and the lack thereof. We got judged on all that stuff. So I would be handed a play when I would walk into class. I would have about 30 minutes to read through it. And then I would have to read a part or read all of it and read different parts to practice reading like this person and reading like this person. That was a whole class for me, performance reading, performance communication. And so I did that. Well, I had this one play that I was given that I'd never heard of before, but I've never forgotten it because it was a play that was written right after World War II, right after the Holocaust. And it was a play um, about that period of time. And in the play, basically it's set in the period of time right after World War II. And the Germans begin to learn about the Holocaust and about all that happened in the concentration camps. Because here's what most of you may not know. Most of them didn't know what was happening, the extent of it. And so this great injustice that's going on, and they learn about it. And here's how the people kind of responded throughout the play. Here's what they did. They responded in a couple ways. The common people thought, this is a horrible atrocity. The leaders are responsible for this. Leaders are responsible. So as the play kind of progresses, basically what happens is the leaders go to the top leadership. They say, you're responsible for this. You could have stopped this. And the top leaders go, you know what? No, no, no. Who's responsible for this? God is responsible for this. Only God could be responsible because God created a world where human beings could do this to other human beings. So ultimately, God's responsible for this. Let's take God to court. And that's kind of how the play ended, that God was ultimately responsible for the Holocaust, that he's the one who's on trial because this injustice had happened, and he's the one who's got to pay for it. 
So here's what we see. Basically this is that we want to bring God on trial. And sometimes people you meet go, there's injustice in the world. There can't be a good God if there's injustice in the world. But here we see the justice of God and why. Verse five says this. Moses says, or the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people. And he tells them to take two things with them. Here's the first thing he says. Take the elders of Israel with you. And then he says, secondly, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Two things. Take the staff, take the elders of Israel. This is court language. This is litigation language. Moses is about to go to court. So the staff always represented, even in Roman ancient times, the staff represents the scepter, the rule of justice. And so he gives it to Moses because Moses is supposed to rule. And so he says to Moses, take your staff. So he got the staff, the staff with which he struck the Nile. He's going to go to court. He also tells him, bring the elders. The elders would have been the people who would have walked into court as witnesses. So here's what we see. This court setup, he's taken the staff, he's got the elders as witnesses, and so all the people who have brought litigation against God through Moses are going, okay, we're going to court. Who's on trial is the question. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock. Who's on trial? Moses isn't on trial. He's holding the scepter of judgment. He's holding the staff of judicial judgment. He's not on trial. So maybe as he came towards the people, maybe they thought, oh no, we've made a litigation against Moses, but now he's coming against us. He's got the elders of the people. Maybe we're on trial, but look at what it says in verse five. Moses isn't on trial and the people aren't on trial. How do we know that? God says, pass on before the people. So I want you to get this played out in your mind. After this this grumbling, this quarreling, Moses gets the staff. He gets the elders of Israel, the witnesses, and they're going to go to court. This is court language. So they walk to the people. The people are thinking, oh, we're on trial. They walk past the people, and then the question would enter their minds, who's on trial? Well, what does God say here? Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That phrase there, I will stand before you, is a phrase that also is used in judicial kind of court language. So you have this staff of justice. You have the elders as witnesses. And then you have the one who's come to stand before them. And he says, I will stand before you. This is a phrase that's used typically in court language. And here's kind of the undertones of it. It's an inferior coming before a superior. So anytime anyone would approach a king, they would come and they would stand before them. If you approach a judge, you stand before him. Here's what God says to them. I will come and I will stand before you. What does that mean? It means that Moses isn't on trial and the people aren't on trial. Who's on trial? God is putting himself on trial. Look at what it says. I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. So they asked for the thing that they shouldn't have asked for. They asked for litigation against Moses, but they actually were asking for it against God. They wanted to put God on trial in their hearts. And guess what? God says, I will go on trial so that you can drink. Now, a lot of us want justice. Like you watch those videos, like the Invisible Children video, and your heart cries out for justice. But you know what's true about us? Every one of us in here is unjust towards the living God. So as they quarreled and as they wanted to put Moses on trial and ultimately God on trial, the reality was this. If they really wanted justice and they really knew what justice was, they wouldn't ask for justice because they themselves were guilty. So what's true about tonight is if God really let justice come down, there wouldn't be like 50 guys hiding in caves in the Middle East who would just get justice. 
Who gets justice? Every single person alive. Who should have gotten justice that day? All the people of Israel. Who got justice? Strike the rock. Who was on trial? Not the people, not Moses, the God of the people of Moses and the people of Israel. And here's what it says. Behold, I'll stand before you there, the rock of Oreb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it. So what is true about this? If you have your Bibles, I want you to go hold your place there and go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking about idolatry here and he's warning against idolatry. And he begins to mention Moses and the people of Israel. And he mentions this story in Exodus 17. And he's talking about fleeing from idolatry. And he says, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ because there is one head. We who are many are one body for we all partake in one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the idols. Why do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice um, offered to demons and not to God. I do not want to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And he begins to continue to go on and talk about this. And he talks about all the things that line up with what's happening in Exodus. And at the end of it, he talks about how they were striking the rock, how they were coming against God. Back up in chapter 10, as he talks about idolatry. Go to verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, the cloud pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So he's connecting the Lord's Supper to this. Now watch what he does. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So, so watch this. They are putting God on trial. They are putting Moses on trial. And here's what God could have done. The judge could have judged them righteously, and he would have been just in doing so. But here's what he does. He is struck for them. How do they get water? The rock is struck. Who's at the rock? God. Who's on trial? God. You say, well, that's ridiculous. No, that's what happens in the gospel. The reason why we all sit here tonight and we don't worry about the justice of God, most of us, because we believe in Jesus, is because there has been one who has been struck for you. The rod of justice was pulled out and struck on Christ on the cross so that you could drink. So there's an interesting thing that happens on the cross. Jesus says a few things while he's on the cross. One of those things he says is, I thirst. I thirst. So I don't know if you've ever been on a cross before. You haven't, but you would probably be really, really thirsty. He says, I thirst. So the son of God dies on the cross and is struck for us and thirsts so that you don't have to thirst. So what does this, what does this mean for us? Well, it means a couple things. It means that God has been the just and the justifier. It means that when I'm in the wilderness, it means that I can trust in this God who is just. It means that when I look at injustice, I can know this, that the just God has taken the punishment for injustice. So when you believe in your heart or anybody says anything like, I can't believe a God would allow that. Why would a God allow injustice? 
And the reality is, is this. He is not allowing injustice. He has taken the punishment and the penalty of all injustice on him. So here's the thing that we have to get our minds around. So the video, Invisible Children, that some of you have seen. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's like 30 minutes, but it's incredible. So the guy in Uganda, nobody would argue. Nobody would argue if somebody were to say he is practicing great injustice. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of kids. But you probably don't put yourself in the same category with him, do you? You probably don't think, I am as great of a trespasser against the Lord as this guy in Uganda who's doing this to all these kids. The reality is in God's sight, you are and I am. And for the Israelites that day, they drank deeply. They were refreshed. The Bible says that water came out of it. The people drank. Their needs were met. They were satisfied deeply. Why? Not because Moses went on trial. Not because the people went on trial. Because the God of the universe was struck on the rock that day. And the only reason you can drink deeply of Jesus is because he was struck so that you didn't have to be struck. So in your desert, you can drink deeply of joy and satisfaction and truth. Even in the midst of hard, rocky times, you can drink deeply of him because he, Christ, was the rock that was struck. And in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul talks about that, he's saying, this was all an illustration for people of God. That they would, they would go, oh yeah. I remember my grandmother telling me that story about when her grandmother was in this place and in the Exodus and they didn't have anything to drink and they struck that rock and that seemed kind of weird because it's a rock. Water doesn't come out of a rock, but they struck it and water flowed from it. And we didn't get tried that day and Moses didn't get tried that day. In fact, it was God that was tried and because he was on trial, we got to drink deeply. That's what he's saying. What does that mean for some of us tonight? It means this, that you need to drink deeply of Christ. You know, it's been said that if there's no judge, there's no hope for the world because there's a lot of injustice. And if there is a judge, there's no hope for us because we are injustice. But there's a judge who has taken the injustice on himself so that you can drink deeply of who God is. Know that tonight, that God is long-suffering with you, that he is the rock of God, the rock of ages, and that you can drink deeply the satisfaction of Christ and not drink deeply of the wrath of God only because God himself has sent Jesus as a substitute to drink deeply of that wrath. Some of you go, well, (laughs) I know that. Like I know that cognitively. I know that Jesus has drank deeply of my wrath so that I don't have to drink deeply of wrath so that I can actually drink deeply of the goodness of Jesus Christ, his grace, his mercy, the waters of grace. Do you? Do you? Because the reality is, some of you are still chasing after other fountains. We're just saying, all my fountains are in you. Are they? Are they? Or maybe you have a few fountains in him, but really your deep fountains are over here in this relationship. Right? And, and I truly believe this. Until God brings us to the rocky, hard places, to the desert, we can say all day long, I find all my joy and all my fulfillment in Christ. No, you don't. Because you can't find it there because it's not until the desert that all of your idols and all of your other places and all of your other fountains just dry up. So some of you are chasing after other fountains and they're not providing and they're drying up. 
And tonight you need to just drink deeply of Christ. Some of you need to drink deeply of Christ for the first time. He was struck for you so that you could drink deeply of him and not his wrath, but his goodness and his grace. Some of you just need to remember the last time God has been good to you. You've had some spiritual amnesia, so to speak. And here's what we're going to do tonight. Just really tangible as we respond to what God is saying to you tonight. How has God been good to you this week? How has God been good to you this month? How's God been good to you this year? Here's what I find in my own life. As I preach the gospel to myself, as I consider the fact that Jesus Christ, the rock, was struck for me so that I could drink deeply of his goodness and not drink deeply of his wrath, as he was put on trial on my behalf, as I think on those things, it's really hard for me to grumble against God. So if you find yourself in a grumbling state, it could be that you've forgotten the core truth of the gospel, but it could be you've forgotten also just the good things that God has given you. All of those were bought on the cross, by the way. The very fact that you have any great relationships in your life are because you can boast in those because you can boast in the cross. It was all purchased for you at the moment of the cross. And so the reality tonight is some of you may have just forgotten how good God has been to you. And it's really difficult when I'm preaching the gospel to myself or I'm just sitting kind of counting my blessings, so to speak, what God has done for me to grumble against the Lord. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to kind of have a, an exercise in remembering. How's God been good to me this week? How's God provided for me this week? How's he provided for me this month? What are some really tangible things where I can just look and go, that is the blessing and the goodness of God. That'll keep you from grumbling. When you begin to look at the goodness of God, ultimately the cross, but then everything that flows out of that. And so here's what we've done tonight as you respond. There are some poster boards and some markers right back on the two back tables back there right behind you. And here's what I want to ask you to do. It could be a big thing. It could be a really small thing. But I'm going to ask you to consider the long-suffering of God, the rock of God, the justice of God in the everyday things that God is providing for you. And just to go write it down, just as a statement of, God, you've done this for me. And as an exercise of me just kind of remembering and us remembering corporately together just the good things that God is doing in our lives, whether they're really small things um, or really big things, just go write it down. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take those next week, and we're going to put them in the prayer room, and then we can just kind of see just how good God has been to us as a people. Because I guarantee you the reason why they stopped believing and having faith and started grumbling and bringing litigation against God and Moses was because they hadn't taken time to go, oh, by the way, I ate this morning because manna came from heaven. And that ceased to be miraculous to them. And if God ceases to be miraculous to you, you will become a grumbler. Let's pray. So, Father, tonight we just want to tell you that we love you, but we don't love you like we should. In fact, you love us more tenaciously and more steadfastly than we could ever think about loving you. And so, God, we thank you for that. God, I thank you that you are a God who has pursued me when I was not pursuing you. And even on the days when I don't pursue you, when I grumble and when I quarrel with you, God, you are long-suffering. You are steadfast. So, Father, some of our idols and our wells are drying up. And, God, that's a good thing because you're focusing us on you. So Jesus, tonight, I pray that you'd allow us to remember 
Even a simple thing is going back and just writing a simple statement of something you've done, very practical, very tangible, of who you've been to us these days. God, use that. Not only in the life of the person who's writing it, but in the life of us as we read those things. God, to know, Lord, you're not only doing good things in our lives, but you're doing good things in in everyone's life because you're a good God, full of grace. And God, we thank you tonight for the gospel that you, Jesus, are the rock that was struck. Struck with the rod of wrath poured out on you so that we could drink deeply of the waters of grace. We love you tonight, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's